0: to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.blchurch.tv. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good. It's so good to see everybody here. We have several people out sick, so we want to... Keep them in mind. I know the Basors are still recovering. Uh, Rick Basor, recovering from the COVID. My mother, father, and sister-in-law all got a touch of this sickness. So we want to be in prayer for Greg, Lori, and Laura. And of course, Timmy, recovering from surgery. So there there are many of us that are out today, but uh, we just know that the Lord is with each and every one of them. If you're watching online, we miss you. And we hope to see you again with us back really, really soon. Today, we are in week three of this series, What in the World? I don't know if, if you have felt the same way I have with just turning on the news or seeing anything going on in, in the world today. It just seems like there is chaos and pandemonium everywhere you turn, and which is why we're calling this series, What in the World? What's going on? Right? So we're highlighting some things that um, uh, are going on in our world today, but then also sharing what I believe is the biblical perspective that we as believers in Christ have to keep in mind as we not just live in this world, but work to advance the kingdom of God. We can't forget that we have a mission. Jesus left us here to advance the kingdom to share the gospel. It's a rescue mission for people who are lost in darkness. And I think as believers, at least in this nation, we've we've been kind of insulated from the world to a degree because of how Christian our nation has been historically. But what I want to r- recall your mind to is that the world has always been lost. The world has always been broken even America. There has always been this brokenness, this stuff in the world that, that we see going on. It has just had different forms, and it may not have been as evident because of technology it hasn't been what it is today where we can see everything. But there has always been this type of brokenness in the world. It's nothing new. Solomon even wrote in the, in the Bible, there's nothing new under the sun. So none of this is new, it just may be new to us. That for the first time in our lives, we're waking up to to see how messed up this world really is with some of these things that we're having to deal with now in our nation. I want to hammer this core belief down. We say this almost weekly. It's something that I truly believe because if we don't get this part right, we're already off base. But we believe here at Vertical Life Church, everybody matters to God. For God so loved the world, not certain people, select groups, certain ages or, or uh, shapes and sizes. It is all people for all time. There are no subgroups of care in the kingdom of God. God loves everybody equally, which means so should the body of Christ. Since everybody matters to God, everybody matters to us. No one is differentiated. So as we look at identifying issues in our culture that are leading to the confusion and chaos in our culture and around the world, it's coupled now with ideological pushes to force people into agreement with certain ideological beliefs. We talked about critical race theory last week. Again, this is nothing new. This is something that governments have been doing for all time. The propaganda, indoctrination, brainwashing, it's something that's always gone on. We're just seeing a new form of it in our world today. But now in, in our world, since we, we value the freedom of speech, there, there are people that, um, that are just watching interviews with people coming out of Australia or Canada, places where they are mostly free, But in their founding documents, they do not have an innate freedom of speech that is uniquely American, where we have the right to speak out against our government without facing reprisal. That's a uniquely American thing. So it's a privilege of American society to have the freedom of speech and not be afraid of what the government may or may not do with what we say. So that's something we need to thank God for in this nation and fight for. But right now, there are different ideologies trying to take that away, to erode that freedom that we have. And there's a push with these different belief systems to use the force of government to not only silence opposition, but also force people into compliance. You've probably heard this phrase, hate speech, right? a very common term floating around our culture today is hate speech. It's a buzzword that means abusive or threatening speech or writing that expresses prejudice against a particular group, especially on the basis of race, religion, or sexual orientation. So it, it is something that is threatening or expresses prejudice or bias. It is hate speech. But this term in our society today is not being used just toward abusive or threatening speech. It's also being used towards disagreeable speech. If I disagree with your position, now I'm using hate speech. If you were to take the position that in what we're looking at today is a very sensitive issue, and I want to start off by letting just you know if you don't know my story, this is a personal issue for me. There there are people in my family that struggle with this, and so this isn't a message of condemnation or fire and brimstone, though I might be speaking passionately. This is a very sensitive issue that I think we need to have grace and compassion for. But in our world today, especially around the subject of gender, if you in our country, in our world believe that there are only two genders today, you could be labeled a hater. That could be labeled as hate speech because others would hold to the position that that belief disenfranchises or demeans a subset of the population that would affirm to the contrary or otherwise. So in our culture today, we can't disagree with each other anymore and have open dialogue. We, we now have to be not just unified, but also uniform. And so in uh, New York City, there's a New York City human rights law. It's the NYCHRL. It prohibits discrimination in employment, public accommodations, and housing. It also prohibits discriminatory harassment and bias-based profiling by law enforcement. And I think we would agree, by and large, that's a good thing. But in this law, It also requires city workers, if they fail to use an individual's preferred name or pronoun, they can be labeled discriminatory. So if you work for the city of New York or or own an apartment complex or the like, according to their discrimination laws, if you refer to a biological female as a biological female who's presenting herself as a male you are in violation of this human rights law and are subject to penalty under the law. So not only are groups and states moving toward revoking our freedom of speech, being able to voice our opinion, but they're imposing laws to govern how people are allowed to address one another. This is the first time in history we're not just outlawing what you can't say, we're also telling you what you have to say. So you can't go into a movie theater and yell fire without being subject to criminal prosecution because incitement, of panic, and whatnot. So there are certain things, even with our freedom of speech, we cannot say. This is the first time in history we're being mandated on what we have to say to change. And so forcing people into compliance with the belief that gender identity is equal par, on equal par or footing with your biological sex. Or rather, how you identify is more important than the sex that you were assigned when you were conceived. Again, this is the first time in history that feelings ever received recognition in civil rights that we're giving rights to people based on how they feel other than some type of objective standard. The problem with feelings is that they are subjective. Feelings are subjective, whereas biology is objective. So consider the room today. You might be in the room today and feel like the room is cold. Anybody think it's cold in here? A few of us. You might be in here thinking, man, it's just right. Or or you might be in here feeling like, man, it's kind of hot in here. It's kind of warm in here, right? How you feel about the room is purely based on your subjective point of view. So in order to know or discern whether or not the room is cold, just right, or warm, we have to use an objective standard to tell us what's going on in the room. What do we use to determine the temperature of a room? we use a thermometer, right? So we we look, and if the thermometer is reading 70 to 75, which is usually comfortable temperature, and you're cold, what's that tell us? You might be sick. If it's reading cold and you're hot, what's that telling us? Well, you might have just come from an extraneous activity, your pulse and your blood flow might be elevated, increasing your body temperature. And so there are physical factors going on helping you feel warm, or you might just be at that time of life where heat hits you out of nowhere at random times, a cold sweat to a hot sweat. So there, there might be something going on, but the temperature gauge tells us objectively what's going on so that we can interpret subjectively everything else that make sense? So the objective standard tells us when things are out of balance. The problem with the push for gender identity inclusion is that we are giving people the autonomy to choose their own reality, which is their right, but then forcing everyone else around them to agree with and support that reality as if it were true. It's devoid of anything grounded in objective reality. You must accept my personal truth as truth, forced indoctrination, punishable by government entities. That's fascist in a violation of the First Amendment. That'd be like us telling every atheist out there, we believe God exists, so not only can you not say God doesn't exist, but if you do, you can be fined by the federal government. Nobody would stand for that but yet in the area of gender we do to give you some back history as how this all really began that it's really not being pushed by the scientific community but more so ideologues with an agenda the first studies in gender identity can be attributed to a man named John Money and uh, he was the pioneer of study gender identity in the 1950s dr john money a leading sex researcher who pioneered the study of gender identity and helped establish Johns Hopkins Hospital as the first one in the United States to perform adult sex change operations. In the 1960s, Robert Stoller, an American psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who also studied homosexuality, transsexuality, and intersexuality, was inspired by Money's work and borrowed the term gender, and he's the one that coined the term or expression gender identity in his book, Sex and Gender. So both of these men are attributed as being the pioneers with a scientific approach to understanding gender, sexuality, orientation, and the like. And Johns Hopkins University became the leader in research and even treatment for many years in this area until a man named Dr. Paul McHugh came to oversee this department at Johns Hopkins University. Paul Rodney McHugh was an American psychiatrist, researcher, and educator. He currently is the University Distinguished Service Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the author and co-author and editor of seven books in his field. And though Johns Hopkins has recently resumed doing these types of treatments, sex uh, change operations and the like, when Dr. McHugh was in charge of the department, he put an end to the sex reassignment surgery and other controversial treatments because of a lack of research and evidence that it made any positive impact whatsoever. That that this assumption was before they put an end to these surgeries, before this controversial decision, the assumption was if someone had gender dysphoria, believed that they were a different sex trapped in, you know, like a woman trapped in a man's body and vice versa, if you were to do the sex reassignment surgery, that that would increase the quality of life for patients and help in their ability to cope with their reality. But the studies conducted after treatment, by and large, that wasn't the case. And so because the evidence showed that it didn't actually help quality of life for most people, he ended the study or ended the program. And a matter of fact, the latest statistics that are out there, if you, if you do your research, it shows that not only do people with transgender in, uh, issues automatically have a high risk of suicide. There is an incredibly high risk of suicide for people with these issues. But those that go through the surgery are 19 times more likely to commit suicide than those who don't. So the the surgeries and the, the way we're treating this actually increases the likelihood of suicide rather than decreases the likelihood of suicide. In the fall of 2016, Dr. McHugh and Lawrence S. Mayer, who was a professor of statistics and biostatistics at Arizona State University, and at the time of the publication, he was a scholar in residence in Johns Hopkins, they co-authored a study that looked at all the prevailing research of the day to see if a link between biology and sexual orientation or gender identity expression could be found. Was there a physical uh, source or a physical factor that caused people to be... This way, According to the article, uh, the research, an article in the Washington Post summarized their findings by stating that neither sexual orientation nor gender identity is biologically determined. Which means the scientists, the leading researchers, educators, teachers, the, the ones who began the whole process of sex reassignment surgery in our nation, they couldn't find a physical link to these issues. They, they, there wasn't one. Another article um, continued to summarize that, that stated um, on NBCnews.com, they summed up the article by highlighting these key points, that one, the LGBTQ people are not born this way, yet biological sex is innate. It's natural. Your biolog- biological sex is natural. Gender identity is an elusive concept, and so transgender people do not exist. Now, that doesn't say people don't struggle with this issue. It just says there's no such person that can actually change their gender. It's biological. You, you cannot physically switch from one to the other. And the third point was that so harmful, so-called confused children uh, to offer transgender treatment and societal accommodations would be harmful to children rather than helpful because upwards of 70 to 80% of kids that have this condition typically grow out of it. So this, of course, was not received well by the activists. And the liberal news media and medical proponents of the LGBTQ agenda tried to discredit this study by attacking McHugh's conservative leanings and even the publication that published, published this article, uh, this finding or report, they, uh, they attacked it because of its right-leaning um, tendencies. And in today's culture, the mantra is, if you don't like the facts, criticize the character to undermine the facts. And, and we do this on both sides. If, if you hear a report on a liberal news media or somebody that is opposition to you and, and you hear a report that, that rubs you the wrong way, what do you say? Well, they're just Democrats, so they're probably not telling the truth. Or they're just Republicans, so they're probably not telling the truth. We don't actually go look at the research. We just categorize it as op- opposition party and we discount it. And that's what they were trying to do. In the Washington Post article, another doctor named Dean Hammer was a scientist at the National Institutes of Health for several decades and was one of the first researchers to attempt to identify a genetic link to homosexuality. Hammer termed some of McHugh's statements in his uh, findings as pure balderdash. He he, opposed his research and he discounted it altogether. He was rejecting McHugh's findings because it contradicted the findings he put forth in his research, and it came against this activist agenda. Now, Dean Hammer's studies are credited to have potentially found biological links in DNA for sexual orientation and gender, but nothing conclusive was ever found. Matter of fact, he published his studies and findings, and according to embryo.asu.edu, In 1995, Scientific American, one of the most well-respected scientific publications, uh, published an article about scientific doubts about the genetic influence of homosexuality. A later study duplicated Hammer's research and found there is no X-linked gene that contributed to male sexual orientation. The researchers of the study agreed there was a possibility that some physical component could be inherited, but they found no evidence Just like Paul McHugh's study that there was any type of physical link. And even though this continues to be a question, scientists have sometimes questioned that homosexuality is genetically determined. They actually look at environmental and behavior factors instead because they remain to this day and have always been the leading factor in gender dysphoria and other forms of sexual orientation dysfunction. The primary cause that contributes, that anyone can find, is not physical or biological. It's not objective. It's purely subjective. Abigail Schreier is a journalist, best-selling author of Irreversible Damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters in 2020, She's a graduate of Columbia College, University of Oxford, and Yale Law School. Her work regularly appears in the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and other publications. She argues that there's actually a conspiracy with this gender agenda, and it's highly connected to the critical race theory. That they're, they're, they walk hand-in-hand hand together, the critical race theorists, that it's really a push for identity politics, exploiting marginalized people to push a radical agenda Among the 200 plus interviews of medical professionals that she conducted with a wide variety of of groups and, and research institutions, she found that in our society today, the consensus for treatment for gender dysphoria is total affirmation. The consensus for treatment. Regardless of all we know scientifically, the consensus for treatment is total affirmation. And then there's such a political and societal pressure to affirm a person's desire to transition their gender, there are literally no diagnoses at work, medical checks, or balances in place to determine whether that's really medically necessary. So doctors immediately place teens, or in some cases, young children on hormonal treatments, and on a path to transition their gender. And anyone who comes out and thinks this is a bad idea is canceled or pressured into silence. And in some countries now, they will label parents as abusive and remove the kids from the home if the parents try to stand in the way of the gender reassignment surgery. In her findings, one of the startling statistics that she shares is that with all the acceptance and treatment available in today's culture, you would think that now that it's not just legal but accepted, that there'd be people from all walks of life coming out to go through transition um, their their sex. That, That this would be, people think it's so common and so natural that people from all walks of life would come to go through the process of transitioning their gender. But what was startling to her and what shocks me is that the only group out of all the demographics, the only group that has seen an explosion in gender dysphoria at almost an epidemic level is teen girls. What was predominantly a male issue in history, the explosive growth is in teen girls. And her studies have have shown that the reason is is because of the susceptibility to what scientists called social contagions. A social contagion is simply the spread of ideas, attitudes, or behavior patterns in a group through the imitation or conformity. So in other words, this person's doing it. They're They're going through the process. Girls have a tendency of not only identifying, but taking on the burdens of their peers. And so they naturally begin to follow that process. They're more likely to take on the burdens of their friends and the behaviors. Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, a clinical psychologist and the author of bestsellers, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, 12 Rules for Life and An Antidote to Chaos, which was number one for nonfiction in 2018 in the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, and the Netherlands, Brazil, Norway, and slated for translation into 50 other languages. He interviewed Abigail Schreier, and they're talking about the issue of social contagions. And Dr. Peterson stated that this is why they don't put girls suffering from anorexia in the same place in mental institutions, because they feed off each other, and they make it worse, so they have to separate people that are, uh, especially girls, that are struggling because it actually goes against their uh, healing and repair than the other way around. In the discussion and in interview with Abigail Schreier, she comments that the studies show that teen girls are m- so much more susceptible to this overt indoctrination as they take on each other's burdens that they are actually very susceptible to inconspicuous brainwashing. And many uh, agenda... Uh, ideologues or people that are activists uh, that are pushing this agenda, they now have sites online that are slated to groom kids into gender transition, telling them that if they have any type of cognitive impairment, depression, social disorder, anything of the like, it must be due to gender uh, dysphoria pushing young girls into transitioning their gender into this process. So this is our modern climate. This is the the world that we live in. And advertisers are depicting gay relationships on TV, television, commercials, as if it's just as normal as anything else. The LGBT community actually only makes up 3% of the population, only 3%. But yet all the advertisements are being projected as it's just as normal as anything else. Comic book heroes are being transitioned into gay characters. There's a, and in the medical field where acceptance and affirmation is virtually mandatory, questioning the current methodology and complete acceptance is out of the question, which goes to push these ideolo- ideologies on kids as young as in kindergarten. In the state of California, in their uh, sex education begins in kindergarten, where they literally ask kids or tell kids that only you can know your true gender. Only you can know. It starts that young. So we're pushing these ideologies on kids as young as kindergarten, and activists are now trying to prove statistically that there's no psychological or social difference of a child growing up in a home where there is not both mom and dad, contrary to decades of data to the contrary. Removing any sense of normalcy, causing irreparable damage into our youth, into some areas of society, especially because these transition treatments, these sex change operations are irreversible in most cases. It's permanent. So the more ideologues and media educators cause people to question their gender in in the elementary school level, the more and deeper we are going into this chaos. Abigail Schreier called this in the interview, uh, it is tantamount to witchcraft, the fact that no other type of medical issue in history Have we allowed the the patient to self-diagnose and require the doctor to treat the patient based on what they feel is wrong with them? Try going into the MedExpress. I mean, I just did this. I I get Henri every once in a while. I, you know, I get that little Henri streak. And I know that like ivermectin is like this big hot button issue whenever um, uh, people are talking about COVID and when my daughter was diagnosed, we went in there and we were talking about different treatments. I had to ask the nurse or the, the doctor talking to me. I was like, what about ivermectin? Can we get some of that? And she's like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And so I, I backed off because I thought it would really get heated if I tried to push. But um, I, the thing is, is that she didn't just say, oh, you want ivermectin? Here you go. She was giving her medical opinion and was very strong about no, I'm, I don't recommend that. And I probably if I asked, she probably said, no, I wouldn't give you that medicine. Because her conviction said no. But in every case, when gender dysphoria is the subject, the doctors are near obligated just to start them on the path of treatment because of where we are in our place. And so the question is, is why is gender studies and critical race theory right now, why is it such a push right now in our nation? What, what's behind it? And I believe it's more of a spiritual issue than a human civil rights issue. I really do. And I think it's because the restraining force in the world is lessening opening for the, an uprising in demonic ideologies and strongholds to become more commonplace. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is talking to the church about the last days, the end times, and what, what to look for, what are some of the signs. And he's talking about the one that we commonly call the Antichrist, this world leader empowered by the devil himself who's going to come to power in the last days and rule the world. And he's giving them some signs of of what's going to happen prior to this moment. And in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Don't you remember that I told you about all of this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back? Who? The Antichrist. What's keeping the Antichrist from coming to power? There's something in the world right now that's restraining him from having his day in the sun right now. What is it? He says, For he can only be revealed when his time comes. Verse 7. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who's holding it back steps out of the way. So the Antichrist, the one the Bible calls the lawless one, he can't come to power until his time. When his time comes, this restraining force is going to get out of the way, which is going to open the door for him to come to power and come arise. And what I I think is interesting here is says that the lawlessness is already at work secretly. Which means since Bible times and beyond, there's a lawlessness in the world as a result of sin, and that it can only go so far until this restraining force is moved out of the way. So what does it tell us if we're beginning to see this more and more and more at a more rampant and a higher and faster rate? It means that force that's restraining is beginning to step out of the way. Which is opening the door for the lawlessness to become front and center and the lawless one to eventually take his place. Which is why in our world today, people are holding nothing sacred, calling what is good evil and evil good. To think questioning science that's not proven, and even contributes to higher rates of suicide amongst those who deal with these issues. Again, 19 times more likely to commit suicide when they transition their gender. 19 times. That's somebody's son and somebody's daughter. When kids are 70 to 80% more likely to grow out of it by the time they reach adulthood. Why are we shoving this down kids' throats? That's child abuse. That's child abuse. That's wickedness. That's evil. What is good is not being hasty to shove experimental medication and treatment down children's throats by getting to the root of problems and helping solve it. But yet that's being called bigoted and hateful and what is hateful is putting people in jeopardy to ruin their lives permanently without seeking all the possible remedies that could help them we see this lawlessness already at work and it's becoming less and less of a secret the issues with the lgbt plus community group have always there's always been these issues again this is nothing new the gay marriage like decision by the supreme court didn't just make it okay and come out of the woodwork this has always been an issue in our history In ancient times, as far back as we have recorded human civilization, even to the ancient Sumerian culture, there were these types of things going on, this type of behavior. There was a goddess known for being gender fluid. Her name was Inanna. And this is why I see a spiritual component to this whole issue. Inanna, in ancient Mesopotamian, she was a goddess associated with love, beauty, sex, war, justice, and political power. She was originally worshipped in Sumer under the name Inanna, but later by the Akkadians, Babylonians, and Assyrians under the name Ishtar. You may have heard that name. It's not such a clear connection, but scholars also suspect Ishtar, Astarde, Ashereth, and Asherah from the Bible to all be names of this one and the same goddess who did uh, go by the moniker Queen of Heaven in every one of these cultures. Inanna was known to break gender barriers by manifesting both masculine and feminine ways, and she was the first to command what was called the head-turning to transform a man into a woman and vice versa. And the cult of Inanna also had male priests who also played the role of religious prostitutes. So this whole issue that we see is not a political issue, but it does have its roots in demon cult worship. It has its roots in the demonic as far back as we have in recorded human history. So what's interesting to me is that this demonic entity, this principality, Inanna, is known for its influences over love, Beauty, sex, war, justice, and political power. And the proponents for the LGBT community and the critical race theory, these activists, they call themselves social justice warriors. Anybody's crazy feeler going off right now? Right? This influence of the principality is all over this stuff. When Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the unseen world, this is what we're talking about. Demonic powers with authority and rule. This is one of the spirits of our age. Again, the LGBTQ lifestyle, it was a a type of living that was ripe in the ancient world. Every culture had people engaged in these types of practices. It wasn't like it evolved over time. It's all the way back. All the way. From a biblical perspective, it was an abhorrent type of living. And one of the many reasons why God God judged cities and nations. There are cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to name a few. Someone argue against that view, but if you read the letter of Jude in the New Testament, you can see the connection plain as day. So someone might question, why does God care so much about human sexuality? What, what's the big deal? Why should we even as the Christian church in this modern day care about what other people do in the privacy of their own lives? And I would say it goes back all the way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. The verses will also be on the screen. But it's something we have to see that's intrinsically important to our faith. In verse 26, when God created human beings, he said, let us make man or human beings in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. What's that say? Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, "'Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground.'" inherent to our creation as the image bearers of God is not simply just our biology as men and women, but also our expression as men and women. The way we are able to reveal the nature of God, the image of God in us is intrinsically tied to how God created us as men and women. So no matter how much you try, how many surgeries you have, you can't change your chromosomes. You can't go from XX to XY. It's impossible. Even those with variants have a dominant XX or XY in their genome. Is, is your creation as a man or a woman a random act of evolution? No. God infinitely ordained you to reveal his glory in a certain way and it's expressed through your maleness and your femaleness. Psalm 139, 15 says, you watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Job 10:10 says, you guided my conception and formed me in the womb. When you were born a man or a woman, you were created male or female by the wisdom and hand of God for a divine purpose for a divine purpose, so that through your maleness and femaleness, you could reveal the glory of God, fulfill his purpose for your life in the way he designed you to be. And part of that purpose in Genesis 128, it says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Part of the way we reveal the glory of God is this command that includes reproduction, to multiply, to be fruitful, to bear fruit and multiply your numbers and only a man and a woman together can reproduce. It's impossible for two men to have a baby or two women to have a baby. A man and a woman together can fulfill God's call and God's divine plan for his glory to be revealed. So therefore, gender and sexuality are not just concepts of society or social concepts or constructs or simply subjects of psychology and biology. They are subjects of theology. Because God views how we express ourselves as men and women, how we interact sexually with one another as an act of obedience or disobedience. Sex and sexuality is actually an act of worship to Almighty God. The reason why God told the Israelites in the Old Testament law not to commit acts of homosexuality for men to act like men and women to act like women, is because after sin entered into the world, God's design for humanity to break down and God's plan was to use the nation of Israel to bring about the Messiah that would bring about the cross, which would break the power of sin and death so people could be set free and finally return back to his original design. So God used the law and used the the nation of Israel, pulled them out of the way the world was already functioning to call them to holiness, to a higher standard. In Genesis chapter six, we see that one of the very first corruptions in humanity when sin entered into the world was when fallen beings, these demonic beings rebelled from heaven. They came down, they intermingled with humanity. They mated with human women and committed sexual abominations, which was the leading cause of what caused God to flood the earth and destroy it, to baptize it so that he could cleanse it from all the abominations and impurity that was unleashed through that rebellion. That there's something inherent into our purity as men and women of God that enables us to reveal God's glory in the world. But men continued to rebel. They rebelled at the Tower of Babel. and So God eventually gave men what they wanted. He gave them over to the worship of other gods because of their wicked desire of their own hearts. His people were called out of the nations to serve him according to original design and other nations were given over to the depravity of their own hearts. And this is ultimately why Jesus had to come and die and why he's now sent us as the church into all the world to preach the gospel, to rescue those who have been lost. So when a person rejects their biological sex and wants to transition to something other than what God designed, they are in essence spitting in the face of God's gift in creation, his will, the fingerprint that he put on them, and their choosing to become made into the image of another God, a God of their own choosing. Romans 1, 21 through 24, it says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. They instead became utter fools, Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people, birds, animals, and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, what did they do? Vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. The minute worship switched from Almighty God and they began to worship other things, the degrading and vile treatment of one another's bodies became to fruition. When we worship anything other than the creator, when we worship any created thing other than the creator who created it, we pervert what was created. If you worship food other than the, and use it for purposes other than the way God designed, you are perverting food. What does that mean? That means you're using food to satisfy a spiritual need that only God can fill. And so you're turning food into a God and perverting it from its original design of something it was never meant to be. The same is true for our bodies and our sexual desires. The result when we pervert what God created isn't good things as God made it when he said everything was good. It becomes a perversion of what God made. It becomes destructive as the enemy would use it. And Paul states, when man turns from God to do vile and degrading things, it's not a win. When people try to transition their gender or their appearance to match the sex they want to represent, as much as they would like to think, it's not a win for them. It's degrading to them. It's a mockery of what God created them to be. And I believe the enemy is just laughing at people every time, every time, mocking and laughing at people, he's able to twist. He's mocking at their confusion and their pain. And this is the spirit of the age. And he's trying to get more people to fall into this trap. Well, Pastor Joey, how do you know God didn't create people this way? How do you know it isn't physical? Well, the Bible tells us, and God said to the Israelites in the Old Testament law, referring to how other nations conducted themselves he says that sexual practice other than what he's ordained and designed is not just a perversion of his will it's ultimately confusion. In 1 Corinthians 14:33 Paul tells the church of Corinth God is not an author of confusion. God is not a god of confusion but of peace. As in all the churches. So God doesn't create confusion the enemy creates confusion. And he creates confusion by exploiting the weaknesses in our hearts. And people who battle this type of issue, they're slaves to the destructive patterns and intentions of the enemy who has brought blindness and confusion into the most intimate and delicate part of the human psyche, our very own gender identity. And our world is controlled by the enemy. And our world is helping him hurt people, increasing the risk of suicide, making them feel like this is normal and inevitable, calling what is evil good and what is good evil. So what can we do about it? What do we do? As believers in Jesus Christ, how do we combat the state of our culture in this issue? What do we do? And I thought long and hard about this. The first thing we have to do, number one, is we don't believe the world. We don't believe the world. We need to educate ourselves So we don't buy the lies that the enemy is sowing in the world. We don't buy the propaganda. Many people, many believers are falling into the propaganda trap. Matter of fact, Jesus said in the last days, and I think Paul also said that there'll be a great deception that if it were possible, it would deceive even the very elect. There's going to be much deception in the last days. And if we're not careful, we can be deceived by the deceiver. So we need to educate ourselves. We need to understand that the narrative is simply the narrative, but that doesn't make it true. That they would have us to believe that people are born this way, that there's no changing it. It's not a disorder or a dysfunction. It's simply who they were always meant to be. Number one, again, there is no conclusive scientific evidence of that fact. And number two, our culture and media are denying the testimonies of ex-homosexuals and transgenders, and transsexuals, especially those in something called the changed movement, who have actually come out of that lifestyle through the power of God. They're denying it. They say it doesn't exist. But these people have had breakthrough in their identity and their sexual orientation. But if we don't acknowledge it, then it doesn't exist. Paul told the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and this is important as we are trying to break off the indoctrination 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't, you fool, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, worship idols, commit adultery, or male prostitutes, practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy people, drunkard, drunkards, abusive, cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, it says, some of you were once like that. Somebody say, some of you were once like that. Some of you were once like that, but you were what? You were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, he says once, somebody say once. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins. You used to live in sin. Somebody say used to. You were once like this, but you met Jesus, and now you're like this. The gospel is the power of God at work in the hearts of those who believe. Homosexuality, gender dysphoria are all conditions of a fallen heart, conditions that can be healed through the blood and power of Jesus Christ and through the transformed mind. By repenting of sin and turning to Christ as Lord. The lie from our culture is that people can't or don't change. It's a lie. They can change. Selfish people can become generous. Thieves can become givers. Harsh people can be kind. The power of God's presence in us gives us power over our fallen nature and helps us become more and more like Jesus. And there's stories all over the internet of people who've come out of this lifestyle and are living healthy lives through Christ. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the world. And don't let your children become indoctrinated in this garbage. Number two, see it's easy to stand on that. Don't believe the world, right? But number two, don't judge the world. Don't believe the world but don't judge the world. Romans 2, 1 through 4, Paul tells the church of Rome, you may think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad. You have no excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself, for you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God and his justice will punish anyone who does these things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Mercy triumphs over judgment every time. Every time. God judged Jesus, think about this. God judged Jesus so he could let you go free. Jesus was punished so you could find grace. Jesus experienced wrath so you could experience the kindness of God. And it is the experience of the love of Jesus Christ, the goodness of God that draws people out of their sin and into the glory of God. When we look at the world and we see that the world is acting like the world acts without life in Christ. Think about it. How else are lost people supposed to act other than lost? What do you expect? If they're not worshiping God, they're worshiping something else. They're going to act that way. When we see them act the way they're supposed to act when they're lost... That just reaffirms why Jesus said healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. If you're judging the world, how can they experience the love of God in you since you represent God? The very kindness of God draws them to repentance. So if we're too busy judging them, how can we ever love them? And how can ever they come to know the love of God that will make the difference in the world? Don't believe the world. Don't judge the world. But probably the most important, number three, don't bring the world into the church. Don't bring the world into the church. 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul tells the church, he says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Don't judge those who are outside the church who don't know Christ, don't have faith. Haven't been born again. Haven't been transformed. But judge those inside the church. See, the answer is not then, okay, we're not going to judge you. The answer is not then acceptance and affirmation. The church doesn't condone sin. Think about it. What did Jesus die for? Sin. So why then would we exploit his suffering, to welcome in the very thing he died for. We're not going to do it. We're not going to exploit grace to keep from repenting of our sins. You see, part of the deception of the modern age is causing many believers to fall from the faith, is trusting the narrative, over trusting the word of God. And Paul tells us not to judge the world because they don't know any better, But when a person comes to faith and they have that transforming power of Christ, they begin to live like Christ. They become accountable to the body of Christ. We become accountable to one another. Sin has no place in the church. Will we mess up? Sure, we will. That's why we humbly and gently go to help restore each other, to bear each other's burdens, to walk alongside of each other, to get out of the mess. But those who refuse to repent, who want to identify themselves by their sin, we have to call to account or risk polluting the rest of the body. Paul addresses this in Corinthians. There's a man who is having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmom and he wouldn't get his life right. And so he says, you gotta get rid of him. You gotta hand him over to the enemy. Get him out. Because that has no place in the body of Christ. And this is a difficult thing to do, but this is a matter of life and death. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus Christ himself as he explains to John the apostle what is to come for professing believers who not only excuse sin, but promote it to other people. In Revelation chapter 2, 20 through 23, as he's writing to the church of Thyatira, Jesus says this to the church. He says, "'I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn from her evil deeds.'" I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. People look at Christ and say, Christ never condemned this. He never condemned this. Oh, yes, he did. He doesn't play around. If he's going to die for it, it's going to be a big deal. Those who would spit in the face of Christ, trample on the cross to revel in their sin over repent of their sin are not facing eternal life with God, but eternal judgment apart from God. And this is crisis mode for us. Because there are movements in the Christian faith and Christian circles that are affirming and welcoming lifestyles as ordained by God, even ordaining uh, LGBTQ gay or trans ministers uh, into church clergy. Even though we see in Genesis that how we submit or even our identity and sexuality to God is tenement to how we worship God. We will either worship the creator or we will worship created things. And many believers are following this narrative and accepted the lie that God created people this way and is okay with this lifestyle. When biblically it is an affront to God and that belief will eventually lead them into eternal judgment if they don't repent. In the last days there will be great deception. People who call themselves believers need to be held account, brought into correction through truth and love. And those who won't come to repentance, the fine line is, we have to part ways with them, so they don't infect and lead others astray. And this is a difficult line, because it's not about hating people. Hear my heart, it's not about hating people, but it's about loving them enough to tell them the truth. Loving them enough. To tell them the truth. Jesus said, remain in the truth and it will set you free. If we don't get to the truth, we don't give them the opportunity to receive the power of God in their lives. The gospel, again, is the power of God at work in the hearts of those who believe. Delivering them from the very lies that will send them straight to hell. We cannot tolerate false doctrine in the church, but we can't water down the gospel either. Eternal salvation of people depend on us standing up for the truth which may mean laying our lives down for the sake of other people not being respected in order to love someone sacrificially holding this line will make us hated by the world because it doesn't affirm the narrative but for the few who listen and believe the few who listen and believe It won't just make all the difference in the world. It will make all the difference for all eternity. And that's worth it. It's worth it. So beloved, don't believe the world, but don't judge the world. And don't bring the world into the church. Jesus died for homosexuals, transgenders, and all and every kind of sinner. There is none righteous, no not one. There's no place for judgment and hate, but through grace and love and the power of the word of God, like seeds planted in soil, we'll have a fighting chance to deliver people in bondage. And I believe this is the heart of God. This is what he desires for his church, that we would love sacrificially at the behest of our own reputations and the way people think about us, that we would love sacrificially in this way to give everybody a fighting chance. This mission that Christ has given us might be messy, but the mission is worth the mess. Because Jesus is coming back one day. Do you believe that? He is coming back one day. And when he returns, the stakes change. That's why Peter in 2 Peter 3.9, will close with this. He says, The Lord isn't really slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed but he wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to experience the love and grace and goodness of the Father. Don't believe the world, but don't judge the world, and don't bring the world into the church. Let's bow for prayer. Lord God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, God, that you are the God of second chances. There's not a soul in this room who deserves your grace, but I'm so thankful, God, that you've given it freely. And God, I know your heart is for people of all walks of life, every struggle, every trial, to come to the truth so that you can make them a new creation, to break off what is old and past and raise them up to who they were always meant to be in Christ Jesus. God, I pray for the LGBT community right now. Every demeaned, marginalized, condemned, mistreated individual. And I pray for everyone that has encountered a church person who has snubbed their nose at them rather than love them enough to show them the heart of God and to speak life over them. And I pray, God, that you would send revival into that community. God, I pray against the hate that's being slung around in this nation. God, I pray against every device of the enemy that's causing division and indoctrination. God, I pray for our children. I pray, God, that you would guard and protect our kids from having their their minds indoctrinated and their identities questioned. I pray for the resolve of parents to stand up for justice and righteousness and truth. But I pray, God, that we would not grow mean-spirited, but we would be filled with righteous passion. And that your love and your heart is on display in the church. God, I pray that this body of believers will always be a place where anyone from any walk of life can walk through the door and feel equally loved and accepted. And I pray, God, that your presence and your power would remain in this place. Your truth would always be preached and spoken so that everyone, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual, God, that we would all have a chance to meet Jesus at the cross and find eternal life. God, I'm just so sick and tired of watching what the enemy is doing to people. But God, we're no better than anyone else. I thank you for Paul's rebuke in Romans 2 that when we judge other people, we become guilty of the same things. Who are we to think we're better or more or more deserving? We're not. God, I pray for every family that has someone in their family struggling with these issues. God, I pray that you'd begin breaking off the indoctrination and the lies in their hearts, that their family members would have a heart softened to receive the word like planted seed in good soil. God, the enemy has a loud voice in this culture and the church by and large has not done a good job in maintaining its reputation as a place where sick people can find healing. And so they look at the church as opponents, as hateful, mean-spirited people, and God, I confess there are some. There are some people that are misusing and misrepresenting your name, Jesus. And when they do that, they lump us all in the same group and category. I pray, God, that revival would sweep through the church. Jesus, you are equally 100% full of grace and truth may we find the same balance. That we can speak the truth in love. We can address difficult things, but still your heart of love can be on display where people experience the goodness and kindness of God and it draws them to faith in Christ Jesus. God, I know that we're on borrowed time. And I know the enemy knows it too. As that restraining force is beginning to step out of the way, we can see it all over the world from not just what's political, but also the conflicts of war, disease, famine, sickness, economy. It's like we're living the opening pages of the book of Revelation. God, I pray for a church that's alive and empowered by your spirit, a church committed to the mission of Christ, regardless of what it does to us socially or politically, God, that we would be like the martyrs who overcame the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. God, I pray that this house of prayer would not just be a place where we have fun spiritual experiences, because you're here and we thank you for being here. We thank you for your presence. But God, we pray that this place is a hospital for the sick. You would teach us to love people through their mess. You give us wisdom and grace to see everyone from all walks of life as people who matter to almighty God and are worth a conversation. They're worth a prayer. They're worth a generous gift. God, teach us to be friends with people that make us uncomfortable. Teach us how to walk that line between standing up for truth and remaining pure and holy and being gracious to walk through somebody's mess. God, we just praise you in this place. that though we don't live perfect lives, we don't do everything right. Many of us here brought in our own burdens. God, I just confess that pride that allows me to focus on somebody else's junk over my own mess. And I ask you, God, to give us humble hearts because the humble in spirit will be lifted up by the Lord. God, fill this place with your love and your grace. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this church. We thank you for the people that are here, that are gathered, that call this place home. We thank you for those that are gonna be joining us. We thank you, God, that no matter what we're talking about, no matter how difficult the issue, that, God, your love and grace abounds. And I pray, God, that you would send us out today. You would send us out today with a renewed vision in mind over what we're doing as children of God, who we're doing it for, and that our time is short. May your love fill us, your peace guard us. In Jesus' name, amen. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.